Hi, this is Sandy Rios, and you're listening to Sandy Rios 24-7. For the last year that we've been together on this podcast, I've been kind of hinting and telling you about something I was working on, and it's a book. Uh, For the last year and a half, I've been working on this book, and it finally has been released. It's called God's Velvet Hammer. Uh, And the subtitle is How an Ordinary Girl Was Called to Do Extraordinary Things. Oh, and that's me, by the way. So uh, this is the story kind of of my life, my family. Uh, All the places God has taken me, at least some of them. I have to write another book to get all of them in. Uh, But uh, as I began to write, it was amazing to me how I, again, revisited the hand of God at so many critical moments and unexpected ways. Uh, Some of the silly things I did, the foolish things, the bad decisions, uh, the experiences that no one could have orchestrated that God uh, placed me in and helped me to have a front row seat to history uh, in Berlin, Germany, in China, in Russia. So many stories, and they're in this book, and they're funny, (laughs) and they're serious. And so today I've asked Bruce to join me because it's very hard for me, actually, I have to tell you to talk about myself. Now, that sounds pretty self-serving. But honestly, I get awkward when I start to talk about myself. I could tell you stories till the cows come home. But I can't do long monologues about myself, I think, because because I've always felt, you know, it's pretty self-serving. And I don't like that. Uh, okay, so I need help with this. I need help with this. So I've asked my husband to join me this morning. And before we get to that, I want to remind you. Roe versus Wade has been overturned, and yet the battle on abortion seems to be even more fierce than it ever has been. In fact, maybe you don't know, because I didn't really have the figure in my head, we have 65 million babies whose lives have been tragically ending because of our abortion policies. And right now, our policies are all over the map. Some states allow abortion up until the time of birth. And some have very strong restrictions, but we're working to save lives in a different way with preborn. You know, preborn's life-saving work will continue at a greater level as they fight the abortion giants who receive increased government and corporate funding as women continue to have unplanned pregnancies. Preborn clinics stand strong, offering love, support, and compassion to hurting women, helping them to make the right choice. And by the way, you are part of that. They couldn't do it without you. And so each day that I join you, I ask you to give $28. That pays for one ultrasound for a mom uh, to meet her baby for the first time. And $140 in sponsorships sponsors five ultrasounds. So that's what it's all about. And you'll be hearing me talk about it all year because I'm so honored to have preborn as a sponsor. I believe in what they're doing. I think they are the future of saving lives. If we cannot pull back the culture to the notion that babies' lives are precious, then this is the way we're going to have to save them. So go to preborn.com slash Sandy. That's preborn.com slash Sandy and make your most generous donation to start this year out. By the way, you can call us at 662 821-2040. You can always email at sandy at afr.net. You can find more information at sandyrios.com. 
You can find us on any podcast platform, especially our home base, which is AFR, American Family Radio, .net, Spotify, uh, you know, Amazon, whatever, however you like to listen, there you go, and there we are. All right, so uh, I hope you will enjoy today's edition. We're going to be having some fun and some serious stuff as we discuss, well, guess what? We discuss your host and her life and her new book, God's Velvet Hammer. All right, stay tuned to this edition of Sandy Rios 24-7. From American Family Radio, Sandy Rios. We are not called to be nice. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. I think the most important thing we need to demonstrate to our children is genuineness. That we actually believe what we say we believe. A longtime Fox News contributor, Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. Seek justice, not social justice, but God's justice, what's right and what's wrong. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association, a pro-life radio talk show host. We've got to say this is the line. Life is sacred. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. Until 1952, it was possible to cross virtually freely between East and West Germany. However, in 1952, in an effort to prevent large-scale migration to the West, the East German authorities erected a barbed wire fence along the inner German border. But Berlin, entirely surrounded in East Germany, was a special case. The British, American and French occupation zones still worked together with the Soviets in the joint administration of the former German capital, and travel between East and West Berlin was largely unrestricted. This was a problem for the Communists, because Berlin was the one remaining place where East Germans could cross over to the Free West without problems. Three and a half million people had left East Germany by 1961, which was 20% of the entire population. Many were highly educated and skilled workers. In the first seven months of 1961 alone, 207,000 people had crossed. On the 13th of August 1961, the Berlin Wall began to be constructed. It was to become a formidable barrier preventing East Germans from escaping west and increasingly complex in its defences. Travel between East and West Berlin was still required, though through highly regulated checkpoints. Checkpoint Charlie was one of several such crossings. As the name suggests, Charlie is the NATO phonetic for the letter C, and there was also a checkpoint Alpha and checkpoint Bravo. Located at the junction of Friedrichstrasse with Zimmerstrasse and Maastrasse, It is important because it was the single crossing point for foreigners and armed forces personnel between East and West. Well, you might wonder why I played that clip, and it's because I spent early parts of my life in Berlin, Germany, during the Cold War, and that shaped my understanding of a lot of things, and we're going to get into that uh, when we discuss God's Velvet Hammer, my new book. I've asked Bruce to join me because, you know, after all, he is my sweetheart. He's been with me working on this all the way. Honey, thanks for joining me. So glad to be here. Really. <laughs> so glad is, to have you. This is a great, great, uh, a great opportunity for me to talk about my wife, of whom I'm very proud of. Mm, that's a sweet thing to say, babe. All right. Well, everybody would say that. So, you know, everybody writes a book, right, Bruce? That's why I kind of hesitated. I thought <laughs> everybody writes a book. Everybody writes a book. But, and people have asked me through the years to write, uh, certainly about my disabled daughter, Sasha. 
because that's a whole story. I've lived, I think, I used to always tell people I've like a cat. I've had several lives. Uh, That was a long life um, of caring for her. She was severely disabled. So people wanted me to talk about that and write about it, but I just never wanted to. It was just too painful, really, and I didn't want to relive it. Uh, So, and then when I was president of CWA, uh, I had publishers come, you know, because I had more notoriety. I was on the television several times a week, and so, you know, that's when they want you to write a book, but I was too busy. Good heavens, I was running this big organization, and who had time to write a book? Uh, But about uh, a year and a half ago, some of you know I was diagnosed with breast cancer, and now let me rush to say it really was in the on the in the world of cancers it was a non-event honestly so i don't i don't want to you know sob about that i just won't do it it was stage 1 level 1 i had 5 days of radiation and it was over so that's it's really nothing compared to what many of you have suffered nevertheless when you get the diagnosis it makes you stop and think and um i had several friends who have asked me uh, to write a book uh, cleta mitchell was one of them cleta is kind of a she is very well known in DC. She is uh, the leading expert on elections in America and trying to clean up the mess. Uh, trust me, she's a powerhouse. And we had lunch one day a few years ago in uh, Washington, and she asked me about my story because I've never talked to her like that. And I started telling her all my stories, and she said, "You've got to write a book." And so that was in my my mind. And so then um, I want to bring Bruce in because Bruce. We, you and I, had several trips. We had to make long trips to uh, to the hospital uh, for radiation and treatment and all that kind of stuff. And that's kind of when this started. Uh, you ask me for whatever reason. I started kind of reflecting on my life and I started telling you stories. And your response was, "I've never heard that before." <laughs> well, the reason we had to write this book is so that I could find out really who my wife is. <laughs> Uh, she leads such a fast-paced life that we we never take a break, really, to uh, reflect back. It is a problem with us. We need to be more reflective. But anyway, uh, yeah, we were driving back and forth to the hospital, and it's about a three-hour drive. And we really just started, you know, reminiscing. And after listening to about 15 minutes of Sandy, I said, you know what? I wish you would write a book. I think this would be a great book. So she pulled out a yellow tablet, and we just started writing down ideas as we spoke about them, really having no idea this would turn into a book. We were just sort of laughing about well, it that Just time. having fun driving. Yeah. yeah. And when we got home, we sort of synthesized through the ideas, and it's like, you know what? Why don't you write that book? <laughs> uh, you know, the thing that I remember you saying, Bruce, is we were laughing so hard in the car. We were just laughing because yeah. I had a lot of funny stories you've never heard. And you then you said to me, you know, you could write two books. There's two <laughs> books here. This is the funny book and then the serious book. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so. so you've combined them. And, and I also thought it was very important for you to get this down because someday our grandchildren will be old enough to know about their grandma and really what she has done. And it's a little early now. So we don't sit and talk with them about what grandma does. But I... I do think, not to overemphasize it, but I think it's important that they know who their grandma was. Yeah. Well, that's really, that was the main motivation. But then, of course, uh, gosh, I've I've lived in different 
arenas. I have some, obviously, name recognition now, but I'm not on television all the time like I used to be when I worked for Fox. And before that, I was in all the networks at, when I represented CWA, you know, arguing and debating. Uh, and so I wasn't sure if anyone would be interested in publishing this, quite frankly. And I remembered um, when I was uh, at CWA, as I mentioned earlier, I remembered one particular publisher who had reached out to me, and his name was Gary Tarashita. And ironically, I had just interviewed my good friend, Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin, who had a book published by Fidelis. Then I interviewed my good friend, former Congressman Steve King, who just had a book published by Fidelis, and they were both Gary Tarashita. And uh, it just brought his name back to me, and I thought, oh, I'm just going to send him an email, and I saw I wrote a kind of a synopsis of my story, and I said, uh, "Are you? Uh, would you be interested?" And and he responded immediately, "Yes, yes." He just said yes, and that's how it started. And Bruce, I can tell you that never happens. You know that never happens in the world of publishing. People, you know, people that I know, I have really friends who are experts in their field who have problems getting published because uh, books. Our, um, people are not reading books like they used to. And so it's hard to find, they have to make sure that you're marketable, that they can, you know, get some profit out of this. Of course they have to do that. They're a business. So uh, this is actually Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North's publishing company, along with Tara, Gary Tarashita. So it's been my honor to work with them all the way along. But that's how it started. That was God's, I believe, God's wink and a nod that, yes, you need to do this. So, and not just for my kids, but I guess for people that have followed me through the years. Yes, and I just want to tell people, the book is available for pre-ordering. You can get it on Amazon. Again, it's God's Velvet Hammer. Yeah, and I, people will say, why Amazon? Well, because when you, uh, if this is, okay, I'm just, hey, don't tell anybody I told you this, okay? This is, I shouldn't be whispering this, but... Uh, when you are, it isn't published, not out yet, doesn't come out till February the 14th. So the, the, in the world of publishing, you want to get your pre-order numbers up because that helps the publisher. It also establishes you in advance as a reputable author. So that's why we're telling you it's uh, there for pre-order and that's why Amazon, but it will be available everywhere once we get this thing going on February the 14th. But you're my listeners, so you need to know first, right? I think you need to know first. Um Bruce, I want to ask you a question just to get us started. All right. Okay, I don't really know the... I made him not talk to me before this interview, <laughs> so he doesn't know He doesn't know what I'm going to ask, and I've asked him to kind of help me. But seriously, when we were talking, driving, what do you remember what story really made you laugh the most? Well, I several actually, but I, I think the stories of your travels and your jogging experiences in other countries, um, being lost several times. Uh, I, let's just put it this way, ladies and gentlemen. It's amazing that your host is here and that she's not running circles in some foreign country trying to find her way back to her hotel. <laughs> well, that's it, yeah. Oh, I, lo I used to be a runner, I, not a competitive runner, just a jogger. And I did run everywhere, all over the world, everywhere I went. I remember... In Hong Kong, the first time I went, Bruce, I got up early, and I went out uh, running through this park, 
and it was still misty because it's right on the on the ocean, the bay there, just right across the bay. You see red China, and I remember hearing the foghorn saying, mm, mm. "It was the most mystical." It was like, and I, people were in the park doing tai chi, and that and that's just an example of why I loved to jog in these countries. I really got the feel, not a deep one, but I got a feel and a taste and a touch and the smells of the country I was visiting. But yes, I did get lost several times. <laughs> <laughs> and that was not funny. But you made it back and we're glad. So now we get to ask you about a lot of other things. One of the things I noticed right away, Sandy, is who you dedicated this book to. Right in the first page, it says, dedicated to my mom, Lois Wilson. Why did you dedicate this book to your mom? <laughs> because my mom was uh, my most important spiritual mentor, most important. My mom was, uh, well, I, my relatives were so poor. It's like if you've seen the movie Grapes of Wrath, uh, you would you would see uh, very poor people in the Dust Bowl, and some of them leaving and going to California to pick uh, fruit because they could not live in the middle of that. Well, that was my my family's family, my mother's family. Well, and I think it's important to bring up that they were brought up in Oklahoma. Yes. During the Dust Bowl. Yes. So when you say grapes of wrath, it truly is yeah. that. It's the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma, and traveling out to California. Mm-hmm to pick in both areas. I have pictures of my mother when she was little out there with her sisters, um, you know, standing in front of the crops. It's a sad story because they had several children, and uh, my grandmother, uh, with the birth of probably the, I think they had probably six children at that point, with the birth of the most recent baby, developed what they call childbirth fever then. And her fever spiked up to like 107 and my grandfather, you know, drew all the kids around the potbelly stove and told them that their mother was going to die. Uh, neighbors had taken the baby that was born, and uh, so the, the kids mourned, but, the, but my, my grandmother survived. But she survived with brain damage. And the neighbors wanted to still keep Milton. He was the baby. Uh, and my grandfather said, no, we are keeping the family together. So... My grandmother's parents, the Towerys, had a car. They had some means, and they drove that long trip. Bruce, if you just see it, from Oklahoma to California over no paved roads, uh, they drove that distance and retrieved my grandmother and the whole family, and they all rode together, packed together in that car back to Oklahoma. And my mother was raised virtually without a mother, a functioning mother. She was in the home, but she was not in her right mind. So that's how my mother started. And, uh, and, and, you know, I've seen pictures of your mom when they were out in the cotton fields in Oklahoma picking, and she's probably about eight years old. I mean, she's a little girl, and she's taking care of some of the babies. Yes. And, you know, you told me the stories of they would take the babies and tie them to the end, end of the cotton row while they picked the rest yeah. of the row and came back, and then they'd, they'd attend to the baby when they got back, and then they'd do it again. But that was her life growing up. Made their soap, uh, washed their clothes by hand, uh, made their clothing from uh, flour sacks. So, But that's, that's kind of my mother's background. It was a heartbreaking thing, actually, my mother's story, a lot of sadness. 
But what I'm talking about, those hardships are just, you know, the the precursor to my mother's own story. Uh, Fast forward uh, until she was 36 years old. By that time, she had married my father, of course, and they they each have their own stories. And I tell them in this book, both of them from poor families. Uh, But my dad was a very hard worker, uh, worked seven days a week in the oil fields, and they began to have money. My mother went to the store because she always sewed. She made everything. She upholstered our furniture. She made our winter coats. My mother made everything. She was able to get patterns and clothing to make dresses. And when she was driving back home, back out in the country where we lived, she told me that a ray of sunshine came through the window of the car. And for the first time in her life, she felt God's presence and gratitude, and she surrendered her life to him through gratitude, not through confession of sins, but through gratitude, even though I know she did confess her sins. Our lives completely changed. And my mother was my mentor. She was my sister. When I had Sasha, my mother was my partner on our knees. We prayed. We asked God for reasons why this had happened. She was my rock. I talked to her almost every day while she was living. And so that's why I dedicated it to my mother. She was a pillar of strength and faith. Loved her. Well, and I can tell from being with you these years that your mother is probably the one that instilled in you this ethic of hard work, because I'm going to brag on you. I don't know anyone that works any harder than you do and is more dedicated to their job, and I can see why it would have taken someone like your mom to instill that in you. Now, your dad, now he's another story. (laughs) Mr. Swag. I'll tell you, I, I... Unfortunately, I never met Sandy's mom. I did meet her dad towards the end of his life, and I can tell you he was a big presence. Um, And if you get the book, you can see pictures of Sandy's dad when he was shipping out to go to World War II in the Army. And I'll tell you, he looks like somebody you don't want to mess with. He does. And I've heard from people when I went to Sandy's high school reunions, (laughs) they're like, oh, yeah, Sandy's dad. I was afraid of him. I heard that from three guys in a row that I talked to at the reunion, (laughs) 60-some-year-old men going, oh, yeah, Sandy's dad. I was afraid of him. (laughs) Yeah, he was an imposing presence, and he was very strict, although he was a pussycat inside, but he he was very stern, my dad. (laughs) Yeah, well, he had his little buddy. Sandy's told me stories about when he would uh, be out checking his leases in his truck, and she'd be sitting or standing on this the uh, seat of the pickup truck with her arm around yeah him. that was when they had no middle you know it's just mm-hmm. one bench seat so i'd and stand next to my dad yeah she was his little buddy yeah for so. sure yeah so there's a lot of stories you know my my friends were all afraid of him too and i was too you know there was a lot of respect for my dad i remember when uh, we said goodbye when they took me to college because i went to a school in oklahoma and I only and went... Your parents were, at that time, living in southern Illinois. Yes, right? they were yeah. in Illinois. So it was about 500 miles. And so they dropped me off at the dorm. I had never seen the campus. I didn't know anyone there. I knew nothing about going to college. They quickly unloaded all the things because my dad was always in a hurry. And so as I went back out to the car, it was almost like, they take it, and it's gone, it's there. And now it's time to say goodbye because my dad's not about to sit around. And so he says, Sandra Kay... You're almost 18 years old right now. We've taught you everything we know. If you don't know how to behave now, there's nothing we can do about it. And with that, 
he got in the car and drove off. So that was my father. <laughs> the kind of like one of those uh, mushy <laughs> movies, huh? I, exactly. Big, big goodbye. Princess, ooh, do you have enough pink things? You got your little doggy. I never heard that. Never heard that. My dad taught me how to be brave and bold. He challenged me. He never let me be afraid. He made me do things I would never have done, like driving the boat, docking the boat uh, at the end of the win- uh, the, the summer. <laughs> Uh, we used to fish. My dad, my parents loved to fish. I hated to fish. Uh, but my dad would make me go uh, help him take the boat to the dock. So I'd have to get in the boat in the middle of the river while my dad drove the truck 300 yards up on that surface road. Um, I could see him, you know, like between the trees as he was driving, but I couldn't talk to him. So I remember once I was in the middle of the river. I had the the motor in my hand steering it. <laughs> And it was an old river, like old trees, you know, going down in the brown, murky water and insects. And yeah, that's the kind of thing it was. And suddenly I had a, a trout line and the motor went out. And I was stranded in the middle of the river. I was probably about 12. And so I start yelling, Daddy! Daddy! And so he finally notices I'm not, you know, where he thinks I should be, backs up. And tells me to get the paddle. So we had one paddle. So to paddle on one side of the boat, then jump over, paddle on the other side of the boat, all the way down to the dock. So that's uh, one example of the way my dad made sure I had some grit. You know, it's hard to believe when we met and I had a boat that you just weren't that thrilled about boating. (laughs) (laughs) I never thought about that, but you might have a point. Oh, Lord. Well, let's. uh, there's a theme throughout the book. And um, this has always amazed me about you because uh, I was always chasing jobs. You know, it's like trying to angle my, my way into something, uh, seeking something, whereas your life has taken a much different uh, track. And oftentimes you were contacted by other people without any notice that they might be interested in hiring you. Why don't you give us a little bit of a, you know, an overview of how your work life has gone that way? I think that's true, Bruce. It's actually no, nothing short of miraculous, and it's nothing short of God. Of course, the stories are there's they're woven through the book. I'll just choose one if I can I'll tell this clearly, because this comes on the heels of lots of other things. But uh, when I was, um, I had made just made my first album. Lord, I believe. I had a number four song on the charts, the CCM charts. With It was a duet with Michael English, who became, you know, the award-winning best male vocalist in Christian music. He's wonderful. And um, during that period of time, my marriage of 20 years broke up. And that was very difficult because I was, at the time, uh, hosting very frequently on Moody Broadcasting, and uh, people, of course, I already had one album, and people, you know, my music was being played nationwide. But at that time, and I, I don't have a problem with this, uh, if, uh, if a, a singer's personal life was very important to Moody and to Christians, they didn't want divorced singers. They wanted people who were, you know, kept their marriages together for life uh, and, had, you know, biblically handled their families the way they God asks us to do. Uh, so... The one incredible honor I had was that Bob Neff, who was the vice president of Moody Broadcasting at the time, came to me and said, Sandy, by the way, I'll precurse this by saying they had taken Sandy Patty's music off the air because she'd gone through a divorce. 
So Bob came to me and said, Sandy, we understand your circumstances, and I want you to know we're not going to take your music off Moody, and you will continue to broadcast for us, which was huge, Bruce. I can't even tell you. But nevertheless, my singing concert work, which is what I'd known. I was a musician. I was a pianist. I wrote the charts for my band when I would sing. Uh, I conducted orchestras and choruses. I was a musician. Very, that was my life. And I knew that this part of it, I could never explain to all the people asking me to come and sing about my personal life. I didn't want to. I didn't feel it was right. And so I knew that was kind of the end. And I prayed. I said, Lord, you know, I didn't ask for all these things you have done for me. I didn't ask for this. And so I'm just asking you to be with me, help me, uh, help me to honor you in this divorce. And whatever you want from me, that's what you've got. If you want me to just teach neighborhood Bible study, that's what I'll do. Well, Bruce, not long after that, my phone rang, and it was, uh, it was a group uh, asking me if I'd like to go to Moscow and uh, be there two weeks and gather inf uh, interviews with uh, Russians of all stripes. Uh, and I, it was amazing. I'd never done any serious radio like that. And so that was my first dip into serious radio punditry, and it was the beginning of a whole new world. And I assume you talked to some pretty interesting people <laughs> when you were at Radio Moscow. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <clears throat> yes, I think I'll mention, too. We did the first uh, American broadcast in Radio Moscow, from Radio Moscow. And this was before the Soviet Union uh, was, uh, had broken up. So this was pretty incredible. We went to Radio Moscow if, every day for five days. I was in Moscow for eight, uh, two weeks uh, gathering uh, interviews. Uh, but the Radio Moscow thing was just stunning. It really was. I've got a picture in the book of me with a Russian standing under the sign for Radio Moscow. But um, every day we did the broadcast, our, our, our uh, engineer, Sasha, was dead drunk because the Russians drank so much. He was you know, on his vodka. So that was kind of funny. But um, I then, at Radio Moscow, met a, uh, a Russian who was a KGB agent. His name was Yuri Manayev. And Yuri was in charge of English language programming for Radio Moscow. Now, Radio Moscow, some of you wouldn't know, it was a powerhouse in propaganda. It was the, uh, it was the archetype of um, what everybody should do. They had um, broadcasts into almost every major uh, language in the world, and it was all communist propaganda, and it was just beautifully done. I sat in front of the English-language female uh, broadcasting to English-language countries. Bruce, she was beautiful. And they let me hear, they put the headphone on so I could hear her. Her voice was like silk and captivating. Her words were perfect. It was like a spell, honestly. So I went upstairs with Yuri, and he agreed to an interview. And in that interview, he told me that his grandmother had told him about God. Now, I don't know why he volunteered that to me, but he did. And so then I said, but Yuri, and he, she's part of the underground church. And I said, but Yuri, you're, the KGB is raiding the underground churches all the time, arresting them. She's one of the babushkas with, you know, the scarves. And I said, D didn't, doesn't that bother you? And in the interview, we're on a wooden floor, like a parquet floor at a wooden table. He pulls his chair back. It's very noisy. And you hear him go, <clears throat> it affected me very much. 
that was an incredible moment with a KGB agent in Radio Moscow. The second story I'll tell is Clara Lebadinskia. Uh, my, uh, my translator was Tanya. She was a Russian ballerina. She had been. Um, and interestingly enough, as a God, only God can do this. Only God can do this. Uh, Tanya had a son who was severely autistic, but in Russia you don't talk about your disabled children. And as I shared, I guess we talked, we spent, we spent a lot of time together. We talked about family. I told her about Sasha. And that caused her to open up to me about her son. And she then wanted me to meet the neurologist who had a clinic for autistic children. Well, now, uh, the clinic was one of the many run-down apartments uh, in Moscow. That's, you know, when you live in a communist country, it's equal, yeah? Yeah, equally, you live like in Cabrini Green, which is the run-down projects of Chicago. It's all like run-down projects. So the elevators don't work, they smell like urine, glasses are broken, and everybody lives like that except the Communist Party officials. So I went up, took the elevator up with Tanya, and it was uh, just an apartment that she, Dr. Lebadinskia had dedicated uh, to uh, working with autistic children. And Bruce, I, I'll never forget her. She, she had eyes that were sky blue. She was an older woman, but I bet she was a beauty when she was younger. And as she talked to me um, through Tanya, she told me about the history of autism and what we think, the scientific. I, I was in a lecture. She was lecturing me brilliantly on the scientific backing, what we know about autism. And then, she, and then, Bruce, she looked at me. And then she looked off, like up, up with her beautiful blue eyes. She said, she said, but we are beginning to think that maybe there is a God. That was incredible. This is Russia. She's a communist. Yeah. I had encounters like that over and over and over again. Yeah, I, I, I think people, to get context to this, have to understand that there was no talk of God in the Soviet no, Union, not they, publicly. no. And uh, and it w and God was not acknowledged, and this was still very much the Cold War. Um, this was this was different times than now. But you know, um, in the book, you talk about a similar type of situation. Uh, you were doing a concert tour in Japan, huh. and can you explain to us how how Sasha became a topic to you in, in, in Japan and what it did to the people there. Yes, it's, it's remarkable. This is like earlier, bef while I was still singing before the divorce, I was asked by Sunrise Ministries in Japan to come and do a three-week concert tour. And the idea behind it was to, uh, they were doing concerts for non-Christians, like people in Japan really wanted to learn English. And they would, use, they would do anything, like go to English concerts, whatever, to, uh, to enhance their English skills. And so I was in front of a lot of different kinds of audiences. I did 19, 19 concerts in 21 days. And there's a lot of funny stories about that we can't go into, like getting lost in Japan. But um, my concern at that time was when I would sing, I used uh, examples that are Western in thought like the, the condition of my daughter and what God had taught me. That was a, certainly what I, one of the things that I shared. Well, how could I do this, and how would I talk about sin and Jesus in a non-Christian pagan culture? How could I relate? Um, how could I relate to them? I just really prayed about that, and then it hit me. In Japanese culture and Asian culture, there's an, the whole concept of shame. 
And so um, shame comes when you disappoint your family. Shame comes when you fail at your job. Shame comes when you don't make good grades. A lot of, uh, there were a lot of suicides because of shame. Um, and there's no cure for shame in Japan. It's just it. You have shame. You've brought shame upon yourself. And so God just sort of brought it to my mind and heart. And as I stood before those audiences, I used shame. And I talked about what if you could get rid of your shame? And that's what Jesus did. He came to take that away. And then um, also then I morphed into talking about my daughter, that, that, that God uses the weak things, and that that in cultures is a shame, and you hide your children. Uh, but um, God has a different point of view. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So honestly, Bruce, it was like the key. I saw it on their faces, the key that opened up those audiences. And what happened is they, people started bringing their disabled children to my concerts. And one night, um, a neurologist came, and a, a whole group of people with their kids, and they asked to talk to me. Now, I'm thinking, I don't know anything. I'm just a mom of one child who's disabled. I, I don't, you know, I have my experiences, but nevertheless, I went to that room and we talked for I don't know how long, Q&A answers, uh, things that they were not accustomed to talking about this, even the neurologist. And so God just uh, filled me with his spirit and with a lot of words I probably would not have had otherwise. So that's what happened in Japan. Well, thus, I mean, that's the reason for the book being entitled the way it is. This isn't about, aren't you wonderful, aren't you this? It's that God took you and put you in situations. You're an ordinary girl. And you did extraordinary things. This is Sandy Rios 24-7 on American Family Radio. Hi, this is Sandy Rios back with you. This is Sanctity of Life Month. And this is the time we honor the over 65 million babies whose lives have been tragically ended through abortion since Roe. And sadly, since Roe was overturned, babies' lives are at an even greater risk. You see, the abortion pill counts for over 50% of all abortions, making this tragedy available to women 24-7. But in the midst of this darkness, there is a light that shines. Preborn has rescued over 280,000 babies from abortion, and every day they rescue 200 babies more. When a woman considering abortion hears her baby's heartbeat and sees her precious baby on ultrasound, her baby's chance of life is doubled. And that's why we ask you, each and every time I join you to help us support Preborn and the great work that they do. It's $28 for one ultrasound. All you have to do is go to preborn.com slash Sandy. That's preborn.com slash Sandy. Crossfire. On the left, James Carville and Paul Begala. On the right, Robert Novak and Tucker Carlson. In the crossfire tonight, President Bush wins again. The resolution approved today presents the Iraqi regime with a test, a final test. Will Saddam pass the test peacefully? The outcome of the current crisis is already determined. Maybe for Iraq, but not for the Democrats. The Democrats are about to elect Nancy Pelosi as their leader in the House of Representatives. She's charismatic, she's smart. And she's really liberal. I think we need a change. And the change, I don't believe, will come through Martin Frost or Nancy Pelosi. 
tonight on Crossfire. From the George Washington University, Paul Begala, and sitting in on the right, Sandy Rios. Welcome to Crossfire. Tucker Carlson and Bob Novak are away today. They're at a right-wing strategy session with Reverend Jerry Falwell and Newt Gingrich and Arnold Schwarzenegger, but never fear, sitting in on the right is Sandy Rios of Concerned Women for America. Welcome, Sandy. I don't know how I missed that meeting, Paul. <laughs> well, I'm glad you did. But first, just because Bob and Tucker are off recuperating from their Tuesday night hangovers from their victory celebrations, you don't need to be concerned about missing a thing, though. Here's the best little political briefing in television, the Crossfire Political Alert. The United Nations Security Council today unanimously adopted a resolution demanding the return of weapons inspectors to Iraq. Of course, the only people who are not happy with this resolution are Saddam Hussein, for whom the game is up, and the ultra-conservative hawks here in Washington, whose motto seems to be, all we are saying is give war a chance. Oh, you won't be laughing next week when the war breaks out, Paul. Serious oh, no, business. Well, in the wake of this week's elections, congressional Democrats are looking for a new leader. And look who they're rallying around. None other than San Francisco Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi, one of the most liberal Democrats of them all. Except for Tennessee's courageous Harold Ford, no one else seems to be willing to stand up to her. Pelosi's only other serious competition, the more moderate Congressman Martin Frost of Texas, threw in the towel earlier today. Pelosi's already issued her call to arms. She said, we must draw clear distinctions between our vision of the future and the extreme policies put forward by the Republicans, end of quote. Didn't the election send a pretty clear message about which party the voters think has the extreme policies? We say, bring on Nancy Pelosi. When she becomes the voice of the Democratic Party, the American people will have an even clearer understanding of just who is extreme. Sandy Rios of Sandy Rios 24-7 with you. That was uh, that was the, the, the glory years when I was doing a lot of television in D.C. And I used to actually, I hosted Crossfire at George Washington University uh, with Paul Vigala several times. Uh, and that's because of an incident that happened when I was on with Tucker Carlson and uh, James Carville. Yeah, in fact, didn't you have a rather interesting interaction with James Carville? I did. I did. Yes, I did. I had quite, quite a moment on Crossfire. In fact, uh, the, the moment with James Carville is probably the reason why I ended up being uh, the host sometimes of Crossfire, because that was the number one news talk show uh, that during that period of time. I was my favorite, actually. You had a a host on the left and a host on the right. Then you have uh, guests on the left and on the right. Lots of arguments, but some really good stuff. So um, this was right after 9-11, the first 9-11, probably six months after it. I was president of Concerned Women for America. And what was happening is that the Islamists, the Muslim Brotherhood, had were successfully persuading us that Islam was a very peaceful religion uh, and that people that were upset with Muslims after 9-11 Americans should be ashamed of themselves. It was Islamophobia. That's when they coined that term. So I had some very strong feelings about that. And uh, Franklin Graham did too. And actually, they, they, James Carville read a quote from Franklin Graham and looked at me. If, they, if people don't know James Carville, this may not make sense. But he's like a, like a bulldog. Dude, that's the voice of your friend, Franklin Graham. Do you agree with that? And I said, yes, I do, James. Yes, I do. And when I said that, he lost control. He burst out in a in a ring of profanities in front of that was a live show in front of a live audience. And I watched him, and he was like foaming. And so I just picked up my cup, cup 
and handed it to him. I said, James, you're dripping, you're drooling. And then he exploded, and Tucker Carlson responded very humorously. He said, that was amazing. Well, anyway, so the next day I went to my office, and my staff was in an uproar because Rush Limbaugh all morning had been calling me the CWA babe and playing that clip over and over and over again. So that was my, uh, that was my uh, moment uh, of fame on Crossfire. And no one has probably shut up James ever other than you. <laughs> well, I, yeah, you know what? I was never invited to—I to, had debated with him before and actually done poorly because he's a great liar. And while you're trying to respond to one lie that he's told or sort it out, he's telling five more. Yeah. And it was impossible. Yeah. So I had really prayed about how in the world I would interact with James Carville, so that's what came out. I'm oh, not wow. saying God's, that was God's fault, but God did get me a different mindset, that's for sure. Well, you know, you were talking about 9-11. And uh, obviously that terror attack of 9-11-2001 marks all of our lives that were alive then. Um, why don't you tell us what you were doing on September 11th, 2001? Yes, well, actually, on the 10th of September 2001, I was with six broadcasters from around the country crossing the Tuman River Bridge into North Korea by, on foot. Uh, we were there for about two days, maybe two nights, two days. And we had been invited uh, by some mysterious process. Trust me, I was. we were in northern Manchuria interviewing people who were hiding. They had escaped from North Korea. They were hiding in the homes of uh, northern Manchuria Christians and being fed and, and, and ministered to. And we were, uh, the men went, of our group went into caves to interview people hiding, and we went to some homes and apartments, and that's a, those are stories, too, that are in our book. We're talking about the book that I just uh, wrote that's being coming out February the 14th. It's God's Velvet Hammer. So I have, of course, a lot of stories about that that I can't tell right now. But I would say that uh, we were deep in the heart of North Korea and came back across that Tuman Bridge on foot with guards pointed at us, their guns, uh, back into northern Manchuria in China, communist China, where we actually felt free. Weird as that sounds, you felt free. And we went into a restaurant, and the restaurant owner told us about the attack, the the nine, uh, the, the attack that we knew nothing about the day before. Nine eleven. Nine eleven, and we were just stunned. We couldn't eat. We wrapped up our food, and we walked quickly to an apartment building in the dark. Walked up to the third floor, and our our hosts, who were North, or were Korean American Christians, who were volunteering their time and their money and their resources to help the refugees, turned on the television, and we watched as those bodies dropped from the tower. And Bruce, I was on my knees, rocking back and forth, back and forth. I was getting ready to go to CWA when I reached as the president of Concerned Women for America in Washington, D.C. I had accepted the position no one knew, uh, and I was on my floor, my knees, thinking, Lord, what will there be a D.C.? Is this going to be a war? Uh, will there be any need for a public policy organization? What about my children? Will I ever see them again? This is what was going through my mind, and uh, we were stranded in uh, China, in Beijing, and then back into Japan for probably about 10 days, and finally made it home. We watched uh, the events uh, at night, late at night, because there's 12 hours difference in the timing. I watched that uh, service at the cathedral with uh, Billy Graham and uh, George W. Bush, and 
my heart just, uh, that was such a minister to me so much to hear those strong statements and the honoring of God in that cathedral, probably for the last time, by the way, because things have changed so much. But that's where I was on 9-11 of 2001. Well, and of course, that marked quite a, um, a date in our lives because after you had gone to CWA, Concerned Women for America in Washington, D.C., uh, shortly after the 9-11 attack, I arrived there in uh, February uh, 2002 because I had been transferred from the FBI in Chicago to uh, work at headquarters in Washington, D.C. for the FBI. And that is where I became aware of a woman named Sandy Rios. And uh, I, You know I, what we should do, Bruce? We, uh, th- I have a whole chapter. It's called The Blessing of Bruce. <laughs> it's got some great stories, but we should tell them about our first attempted date. Oh, That's probably a great story to just yeah. tell and leave them with that. So I really didn't know what Sandy did. I mean, I, I was new to the Washington, D.C. scene. I wasn't into politics, and I had met her uh, in the building we both lived in. And we had uh, somehow managed to uh, arrange to go out. But Sandy had told me, now, I do a lot of television, and uh, it's very possible that I may be called tonight, so I may have to not go. I said, okay, Um, figuring that was just her out. And so sure enough, I'm sitting at work Friday afternoon, and my phone rings, and it's Sandy, and she says, hey, I'm I'm doing television tonight. I won't be able to go. Uh, Here's where I'm going to be, and um, the show I'm going to be on at this time. So I, I turn it on, and um, all of a sudden, here's Sandy on television with Jocelyn Elders, who had been the Surgeon General under Clinton. And Jocelyn is pushing a book uh, about teaching sex to young people in school. Is it harmful and, to minors? Yeah. But the theme was and, that it wasn't harmful, and, that they yeah. had a right to have sex. And Jocelyn was telling how wonderful this is going to be to, to indoctrinate children into this. So she she said what she had to say, and then they went to Sandy. And it was like, bop, boom. She dropped the hammer on Jocelyn Elders, and rightfully so, and rebutted her statement, her statements one after another. And uh, When they left, Jocelyn Elders was like stuttering and stammering, and it was over, and I thought, wow, this girl is a tiger. And that's where my nickname, Tiger, came from. And actually, Bruce, um, in fact, I have a tiger in my office that I keep all the time because that's, <laughs> that's what God, Bruce calls me. But uh, that's when the whole title of this book came about. Uh, people referred to me, not everyone, but some people referred to me as a velvet hammer. And so that's the title of the book, God's Velvet Hammer, God's Velvet Hammer. And that's what we're talking about. It's a book that's coming out February the 14th. It's brand new. I worked on it for the past year and a half. Uh, and there's a lot more stories. I talk about my, my how I got into radio, because people always ask me that. That's another miracle. I talk about my life as a musician, how I got into that. Radio, how I got into that. I talk about my life as a single woman after 20 years of marriage. I don't like that. <laughs> it's called Me the Swinging Single. I'm telling you, there are funny stories in here. Yes, I think you'll are. really enjoy the book. It's God's Velvet Hammer. You can pre-order it on Amazon. That's what we're encouraging you to do. Well, you know, Sandy, again, allow me to talk about you because 
Uh, you know, any book, when you write it, you ask people if they would like to endorse it. And I have to tell you that people could not wait to endorse this book. And the, some of the people uh, I know personally, and, and I just think the world of all of them. And uh, But like Sandy had talked earlier about Cleta Mitchell. Cleta really is a, a godly, just a wonderful woman. Um, uh, some of our pastors from Moody Church, from when he, we attended there. Dr. Lutz. Dr. 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 Jeffers. Yeah, Dr. Hertzberg. Um, Dave Bratt, who was instrumental in turning around the House of Representatives out of Virginia. Um, Dave has become such a great friend. He's a wonderful person. Uh, Sandy had mentioned earlier General Boykin. General Boykin was one of the original members of the Delta Force. He's a no-nonsense guy. And when I watch him and Sandy collaborate on things, they are a powerhouse. Oh, thank you, honey. And I'm, I'm, I, I think that um, if you just read their endorsements, you will want to read this book. Thank you, honey. Gordon Chang, also is so yeah. proud to oh, have him. Oh, so as many. Endorser. I'm leaving out people. Yeah. I, I can't go into all of them, but yeah, there's so many people. It's funny how when you do something like this, uh, and people, you know, they say really nice things about you. It's you know, you don't want to live on that. I think Jesus would say to us, "It, what, our reputation among men is not what should drive us, whether it's bad or good. And I believe that. I don't dwell when I get horrible tweets. I don't dwell on that or horrible comments, which I've had many through the years, death threats even. I don't dwell on that. And neither do I dwell on the praise of men. But I do know, of course, when I read those, I, I was blown away. I'm so honored. And so... Um, I think that that I think we've given them a good idea, honey. What's in the book? Don't you? I do. It's just I think you'll find it an interesting read in that it just um, goes from it does not go in chronological order, but it does weave together all the different parts of Sandy's lives and how, interestingly enough, a phone call usually started. Yeah. Each chapter. Yes. Well, in our next conversation, I'll have to explain that. But truly, a phone call would come out of the blue and take my life in a completely different direction, whether it was radio or whether it was television or it's just amazing. I do uh, have one thing, though. Uh, it's probably a good thing that we wrote this book or you wrote this book after I left the FBI, because if they knew you had been in all these communist countries, <laughs> I doubt they would have ever given me a security clearance. <laughs> oh, interesting. And if they'd known about my conversation with your boss on a plane where I rebuked him about Islam, <laughs> you might not have gotten that job, yeah, oh, Lord. That's another one in the book. Uh, Sandy's boosting of my career with the FBI is she sat on a plane and basically schooled my special agent in charge as to what the real idea of Islam was and how we needed to combat it. It was a compelling conversation, <laughs> Lord. Uh, anyway, well, like, like I said, God's velvet hammer for better or for worse. And uh, I, it is funny, but I want you to also know I, uh, I believe that that comes with a tremendous amount of fear and trepidation. When God has his hand on you, he's very clear that uh, if you're a teacher, you will be held to a higher standard. And if you're, I think that applies to talk show hosts or radio personalities or public figures of any kind. If you claim the name of Christ, you better well live it, and you better watch your words. And that is something I've tried to do. I haven't always succeeded. I'll tell you about some of my dumb moments in this book, and we didn't talk about those, but they're there. So uh, you can, again, you can pre-order this on Amazon, and I hope you'll enjoy it. Uh, yeah, so that's it. You can go to sandyrios.com and order it also. Well, I think that concludes uh, 
Have we talked about me enough today, Bruce? <laughs> what, what about you? Enough about me. What about you? <laughs> well, there's plenty more to say, but yeah, probably for today we have spoken about you enough. Uh, uh, yeah, I think so. We, <laughs> all right. Well, listen, thank you, guys. I, your listenership means so much to me. Your email, all of that, your feedback, we appreciate it. So I hope you have a wonderful weekend, and uh, may God uh, bless each and every one of you as you listen for his call on your life. This is Sandy Rios on Sandy Rios 24-7.